you guys. So, hey, today we're going to be talking about, about Joseph, and um, I'm going to tell you what my daughter did last night. She made a chart. She graphed, the, she graphed Joseph's emotions as we talked about his story, and, um, and, and the dark places just popped out for her that he had to go to. And so you might, might steal that from my daughter today. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll start. God, I, um, uh, I want us to, to learn about Joseph his life, but more than that, uh, God, we're, we need to know about you. And when it comes to these dark times, we're all going to go to those dark places. It's, it's, it's a reality in our lives. It has been a reality in our lives, and it will be. And we need to know how to deal with that, with our faith, and where do you go during those times? How does this work? So uh, teach us, remind us of, of things we probably know, but we forget when it gets dark. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so, so Joseph, I chose as dark a picture as I could because I think when I looked at Joseph's whole life, it represents Joseph. By the way, there's more than one Joseph in the Bible, right? Just so we're clear here. They both had tough jobs, but, you know, Mary's husband, Joseph, that would have been one way to go. He, we'll probably get there at Christmas time, but, but we're talking about Joseph of the Old Testament. So if I was to put Joseph's job's description into just a quick paragraph, it would be, hey, Joseph, here's your job. You have to save your family from something that's going to happen in the future and bring them to a place where God will turn them into a nation. When Joseph was living with his family, where he grew up, about 70 people, right? But, but where he takes them, they become this a nation of like 1.5 million people, some estimates are there. So let me take you back in the Bible because here's the thing about this room. We've got people in this room who, Joseph, and you could just tell me his whole life story without even opening, cracking a book. And, and others are going, well, Joseph, I'm not sure I know his stories. So let me just help you out a little bit. Let's talk about the Bible for a moment. This is the book of Genesis. It starts with God created everything. At the end of his creation, he goes, and especially, especially Adam and Eve. And he looked at Adam and Eve and he said, the rest of creation is good, but humanity is very good. And that's the story of Adam and Eve. And then Adam and Eve disobey God and kind of don't trust him. And that creates this rift. We call it sin, this division between us and God. And that's a huge problem for humanity. It's so bad that that as mankind reproduced and kind of spread over the world, we had nothing but evil in our hearts, and it got so bad, the guy goes, we got to push a restart button. And, and, and so then there's this flood, and, and Noah's Ark. Someone asked me, Doug, are you going to teach on Noah? Noah, I'm not. No, not going to happen, right? Because maybe some other tough job. He had an incredible tough job. But so there's the story of Noah's Ark, and then the next thing in Genesis is Abraham. So we have these big four in, on, on this graphic. I would have called it the big three. I'll tell you why in a moment. But Abraham, God comes to Abraham, just a guy living kind of in, in the Middle East, and he goes, Abraham, I'm choosing you to become the father of a nation. And Abraham didn't have any children. He was an old man, and his wife Sarah didn't have any children. So th- this is impossible. And, but eventually they, they have children, just like God promises, and one of those children is Isaac. And so Isaac is carrying this lineage out, um, and he has two sons as well, and one of them is named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and the 11th one is Joseph, and that's the person that we're centering on. But this, all of them are carrying the promise from God that he gave to Abraham that from them there will be a Messiah who blesses the entire world. There's going to be a nation, and God's going to use this nation to bless everybody in the entire world. Now, 
That's the end of Genesis chapter 50. You go to Exodus, and this um, group, you'll see Joseph brings them to Israel, excuse me, to Egypt, and in Egypt, that tribe of 70, that, that family unit of 70, the clan, right, becomes a nation. It, but they're under slavery, and then, of course, you've seen the movie, Moses, and he leads them out of, of Egypt. So, so we're focusing in today on just Joseph, and I have to tell you, Joseph has a huge story. Lots and lots of chapters of Genesis are devoted to the story of Joseph. It's a critical um, story. Let me just show you the family tree real quick. So we've got Abraham. I didn't include the women, but Abraham and Sarah. And then Abraham is Ishmael, but it wasn't through Sarah. So Ishmael is not the chosen one for the line for, for, for the Israelites, but Isaac is. But just so you know, Ishmael, um, tradition says, had 12 sons as well. And they had children and became another nation. And when they saw those people, they go, hey, that person's uh, Ishmael... By the way, that's what you do if, you, if, if someone has a lot of children. Like you see my kids just go, hey, there's a Mathersite, right? That's Because that's how it works. They're always ites. All right, so the Ishmaelites. And then you got Isaac on the other side. Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. And God chooses Jacob to have 12 sons, and those become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Because they all reproduce and have children, and then they become... Um, that's where the property, when they get to the promised land that God said you're going to have, that's how it got divided out over those 12 tribes. So whenever we talk about things in the Bible, I'm, I'm really big. I've become much bigger since I've went to Israel, which, by the way, you can come to Israel, right? Next November, I'm going again, taking as many people who will um, come, and, and of course, you've got to pay for it, but we're going to go together, and you want to know more about that, talk to me, and I might throw a couple more plugs in during this message. We'll see. Uh, so where, though, where's the big question? And my problem with maps, when someone asks where, when, and it's a Bible question, they always show me a map that looks like this, right? And you got places I don't even know how to say. And if you've been around me, you go, Dad, Doug struggles with pronunciation. Um, but Hebron and Bethel and Shechem and Dotan, those are, those are the places on that map. And I could show you that map. In fact, I'm going to show you that map. But there's no way you know, if, unless you like, know exactly where I'm talking about, you've been there, what are you looking at? Because it's too small. So let me back up the map just for a moment. I'd appreciate when people do this for me. There's a good hunk of the world, right? So you got, you've got Europe up in the upper left-hand corner and Italy coming down, you can see that. And then you've got the Mediterranean Sea and to the north you have Turkey, Syria. Then you see Israel and Jordan and Egypt. And where you see that circle, that's the circle where the story takes place. Now the land that it takes place in, at least in the beginning, is called Canaan. Right? Because it is not Israel yet. There is no Israel yet. So this is full of, it's, it's Canaan. And who lives in Canaan? It would be Canaan. You're starting to catch on, but last night's group was much quicker than you are in the morning. Did you get your coffee? Are you okay? All right, a little sugar? All right, so they lived in Canaan. And this is where Abraham settled in Hebron, Hebron. And from Hebron, his children lived. And Joseph and his brothers live in Hebron, but they were people who took care of, of sheep, and so they actually had to take the sheep to different places for grazing at different times of the year. And by the way, if you go to Israel, you can go to Hebron with me. Okay, that was for free. Keep going. Right? I do want you to notice, though, the Sea of Galilee in the north, and then the Dead Sea, right? And those two things are fed by the Jordan River. It flows, first of all, nice and and, and, and fresh into the Sea of Galilee, so that's fresh and clean water. And then it flows into the Dead Sea, which has so much mineral deposit, it's nothing is alive in the water. It's a great place to float. It's a great place to rub mud in your face for all the, all the good things and then, and then wash it off. But nothing, nothing lives in that water, right? And that's a dead end as well. 
All right, now one more thing. This family that Joseph is in is one of the most dysfunctional families you're ever going to read about. Right, which, by the way, at the end of this, you might feel better about your family. Right? Because you're going to go, and one of the things I love about it is the Bible doesn't hide it. The Bible just goes, yeah, meet a dysfunctional family. And as you go through the story, you just go, how dysfunctional could it be? Well, let me tell you some of the reasons it was dysfunctional. First of all, Jacob's wives were sisters. Leah and Rachel. How stupid is that? Right? I mean, civil rivalry is bad in the first place, but for two sisters to share a husband... Is, is they're always in competition, and the way it gets played out is by number of children that you have, and so there's this competition taking place. It's absolutely um, horrific, but you can read about it in Genesis 29 and 30. And then Jacob played favorites. He's got 12 boys, and and now the truth is apparent. Those of us with more than one child, if you have one child, you can't play favorites because you only have one favorite. But if you got more than one, can I just tell you the kids take turns being your favorite because because they. And it's not that they're your favorite. It's just that right now they're behaving better. <laughs> but that will change. It'll be another one a little later. Just wait for it, right? But what the mistake was wasn't that he had sons that he enjoyed being with more or less, that kind of thing. That's going to happen if you have 12 of them. The problem is he played favorites. And he gave preferential treatment. And the way this uh, really gets played out is with this, this gift of a coat or a robe, much more likely right? And that robe was unique because it was many colors, multicolored. Well, yeah, yeah. It, all that means is it was really spiffy, right? It was stylish. It was, but the main thing was it was a gift unique from dad to him, and the other 11 didn't get one. Didn't get one. And he's playing out his favoritism in front of the other kids. So moms and dads, don't do that. Don't ever do that, right? And, and especially, don't put it in your will that way. Because what you'll do is you'll ruin your family for forever, right? They'll, they'll play it out against each other. This is all free advice found in the creases of the Bible. So don't do what he did. But he gave him this robe, and his brothers held it against him. And then to add on to it, this was not Jacob's fault. This was God's fault. Joseph had dreams, right? And they were... Incredible dreams. So he's 17 years old, and he starts to have these dreams. The first dream he had was about these bundles of wheat um, or grain bowing down, 11, 11 bundles bowing down to his bundle of grain, right? And so that's, that's the first thing. He has another dream where it's 11 stars and the sun and the moon. And I'm not sure what the sun and the moon have to do with it, but we know what the 11 stars are bowing down to his star, right? And if you look at the first graphic, not only did he have these dreams, which is fine, God gave him dreams, but a 17-year-old should not be trusted to keep self-aggrandizing dreams to himself. So he told his brothers. I have two brothers. Two brothers. My brothers tormented me without mercy. They would pin me down, one of the brothers, and he would drool saliva from his lips over my head until it came just within a fraction of an inch of me, and then he'd suck it back up again and then he would repeat, right? Just like washing your hair, he'd repeat, right? And ever so often, it didn't work out the way he planned it, right? <laughs> He's a brother. If I had a dream like that, I would know better than to tell my brother about it because it would, it would just be, you know, but it, Joseph was so excited about the dreams. He told his brother it's a huge mistake. So then for in, in Genesis 37, 4, by the way, I make sure 
If you want to take notes, write down these chapters. Read the story for yourself. 37.4 says, But his brothers hated Joseph. That's a strong phrase. His brothers hated him because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And the, 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 the coat was a symbol of that. They knew it. But really, Dad, you've got to give him a coat so every time we look at him, it reflects in our face. And, and they couldn't say a kind word to him. Now, hidden in that is also the dreams did not help, and you'll see that very clearly. Let's go back to that um, where slide that I showed you, that now you know where that is. So they, they're all living in Hebron, and the 11 brothers have gone to Shechem, right, through Bethel, kind of taking that journey with the sheep, and they're gone for a long time. And Jacob turns to his favorite son, who's still behind, Joseph, and says, Joseph, I need you to run an errand, go up, check on the brothers, check on the, make sure everybody's okay, and then come back and give me a report. So he makes his trip up to check them. It's about a 40-mile walk through desert and heat and all those kinds of things. He gets there to where they are supposed to be, and they're not there. He starts asking questions, and people go, oh, yeah, we know those 11 guys and their animals and other people's servants with them. They went up to Dotan. So he goes up to there. So the only thing that really matters about that is farther away yet. It's more um, wilderness and, and farther away from, from home base, right? So, so he's on his way up, and he sees them in a distance, and they see him as well. And here's what happens, Genesis 37, 18 through 28. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him at a distance, might have been that coat thing. Might have tipped the hand there, right? They recognized him at a distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Right? So he's far enough away. They huddle up and go, here comes that guy. We're going to kill him. And, and, and when he gets getting closer, they said to each other, here comes the dreamer. Just in case you think they forgot the dreams. They did not. Here comes the dreamer. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. Right? So now a cistern, well, I think mental imagery I had was like a well that we see around here made, by, made out of rocks, and you look down, and it's dry, and he's at the bottom of a well. Just so you know, it was probably a smaller opening. And the, underneath, it was probably more like a cave that would fill up with water and support water and not evaporate straight out of the hole that fast because most of it would be underground. So he's probably in there, and they're all over Israel. So he's probably in one of those. But it's dry, right? We could tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him, then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. There's no way these dreams are going to come true. What they mean is kind of obvious, but, if, well, if he's dead, they won't happen. But when Reuben, child number one, son number one, heard their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into an empty cistern here in the wilderness. And then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. It'll be a natural cause death if we just put him into the cistern. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So Reuben at least has good intentions of just scaring the kid and then saving him and bringing him to dad. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe that he was wearing. So we do know he, they recognized the robe at a distance. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. He's just down at the bottom of this, of this probably underground cave kind of thing. Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, by the way, I love that. They rip off the clothes, they take him, they beat him up a bit, and they throw him into a hole, and then they go, time to eat. <laughs> it's time to eat. So they were just sitting down to eat, and they looked up, and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. So 
So I want to train you. Whenever you see a word that you don't know, where's that? Right? You, kind of, you might know where Egypt is. We'll look at that in a minute too. But where's Gilead? So I looked at a map, and Gilead is, is there, but it'd even be farther to the north as I re-looked at a map. I, I looked at another one, which would explain why they would be in Dotan. So if you can move Gilead up to the north, they crossed over the river, and they're coming down because that's sort of like a highway to Egypt along the coast there. Not with cars, just an ancient highway. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain? Judah's number four child. What will we gain by killing our brother? Right? So he's starting to think it over a little bit. We'd have to cover up the crime. Right? It's not that he doesn't want to kill him. He just doesn't... We don't, I don't want the inconvenience of blood and killing him. And instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother. How compassionate. By the way, I'm like I said, I have two older brothers. How realistic is that? Uh, my brothers probably wouldn't kill me, but they might sell me to Ishmaelite traders. So... He's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood, right? Well, that's long out the window. And his brothers agreed. They had this real compassionate moment together. So when the Ishmaelite, uh, Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, by the way, Ishmaelite, Midianite, same, same thing, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. Now, if you flip over just for a moment to, to, to Jesus, Jesus was betrayed by someone he trusted, should have been able to trust, right? Judas. Anybody know how much silver Judas got? 30 pieces, right? So that's called inflation, <laughs> right? And, 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 but, this, but there's a parallel there. And, and Joseph is going to be a savior, actually, of this whole family. Christ is our, our savior. And there's more comparisons to make, but it's, it's called a type when you can see a reflection of the old in, in Jesus as well. So they, they trade him in, they sell him for silver, and the traders took him to Egypt, which is about 300, 335 miles, but it's over 300 miles on foot through wilderness, right? So that's where, where they're headed. And I'm thinking to myself, we've now talked about the first dark place. And yeah, it was bad to be with Ishmaelites, but that was probably a relief to him because the first dark place was the cistern. And, I, and I'm sure they told him, and we're going to leave you here until you're dead. We're not coming back for you. This is it. You know, I'm, I'm sure they roughed him up and they threw him in there and there was no com- compassion. And I'm thinking for a moment, the Bible doesn't tell us, but, but what do you think he was thinking? Right? What do, what do you think Joseph thought? And I'm thinking, I thought we were brothers. I thought we had a family that loved each other. Uh, how could this happen to me? Oh, poor me. All is lost. I'm going to die in here. All these kinds of dark, dark thoughts come to his mind. What prayers do you pray? Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, where are you? Oh, God, how, what about these dreams? This is never going to come true now. I'm, I'm, I'm going to die in here. And how do you feel? It's, it has to be the darkest, loneliest, most awful place. And for while he's in there, he's without hope. It's a dark place. Now let me tell you about dark place number two that comes later in the story. The first part of the story, I'm going to kind of go verse by verse, and I'm going to summarize. This is a huge story, lots of chapters of the Bible. So I have to condense a little bit. But 37, 36, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt, where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, 
the king of Egypt. So Potiphar is right underneath the king, uh, that level of leadership and importance. And Joseph becomes his servant. And over time, Potiphar notices, we don't know how much time, Potiphar notices, man, this kid is sharp. This kid is competent. Everything this kid does, he knows how to do the math. He knows how to run business. He knows how to run a household. He knows how to lead. Right? And so he turns over, eventually, running everything in his household, probably his business as well, to Joseph. And Joseph is taking care of everything that Potiphar used to have to worry about. And Genesis 39.6 puts it this way. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. Right, the 17-year-old kid, and we don't know how old he is when, he, when all these things take place, but within a matter of a few years, so let's call him 2021, 20, he has responsibility for everything. With Joseph there, Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Right? That would be like the rest of your life. You don't have to worry about anything. All you have to do every night is choose which restaurant you want to go to. And you can afford any restaurant you want. But you have no more work. It's just a matter of choosing which, which restaurant and which golf course, just to make it even more appealing to all of you, all right? All right. Before we continue the story, because we're going to get to a dicey part in a moment, I need to remind those of you who go to the church of something, we plan our messages out months ahead. So that means we don't know what's going on in the news when we, when we plan the messages, what we're going to teach. We don't know when a hot spot is coming and, and, and not coming. But we're about to touch base on a hot spot because the next part of the story is about Potiphar's wife, right? And, and here's me condensing down the story. Potiphar's wife was attracted to Joseph. And the Bible says on many occasions she would say, come, I want you, be with me, be in my bed with me. And Joseph, every time, would say, no, I'm not going to disrespect Potiphar, the master, that way. I'm not going to disrespect God that way. I'm, this is never going to happen. And one day, the Bible says that she was in the house, and all the other servants, so she's completely alone, were gone, except for Joseph, which makes Joseph in a vulnerable place, right? And she, Joseph comes in, and she grabs him and says, come, lie with me. No one's ever going to know. It's impossible. We got, they're all gone, you know, and... and She's grabbing him, and he says, no, I'm not going to do this. And she's got his fabric of, his, of what he's wearing, again, the coat, and pulls on it, and she ends up with just his, his robe or his covering. And he runs out of the house. By the way, pause for a moment. That's a really good strategy for those situations. Run away. Run, don't argue away. Don't rationalize away. Don't say, can I handle the temptation? Run away, okay? So he runs away, and at that point, she is furious, and she starts to scream and yell, and she accuses Joseph of trying to rape her, right? And so when Potiphar comes home and hears the story, Potiphar was furious when he heard about his wife's, his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her, right? So what's the problem? What's the challenge? And I think if we could put ourselves in Potiphar's shoes just for a moment, the problem for Potiphar is how do I know the truth? How do I know the truth, right? So Potiphar, maybe he heard Joseph's side of it, and maybe he heard his wife's side of it. No one was there. No one could prove anything. By the way, it's very hard to prove a historical event. When someone says something happened, and another person says it didn't happen, all those kinds of, he said, she said kind of moments. And Potiphar does exactly what I would have done. He believed 
his wife. Right? I promise you, if, if, if two people, if my wife says something happened and another person says it didn't happen, I am going to go to my bias. And my bias is to believe my wife. It, 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 always, it also serves my future better. Right? Those, those two things kind of go together. So, in our world the last month or so, and especially the last week, hasn't this been all the news? Right? This, this placing of a, of a new judge, this Kavanaugh, the, the, and Ford's allegations. And the problem is, how do we know what's true? Now, let me tell you how proud I am of this church. I know in Crosslands, almost more than any church I've ever seen we have an incredible mix of red and blue and purple and nobody wears any color at all kinds of people in this church. We don't even want to talk about it because we don't want to ruin our unity in Christ over things that are just merely political. And, and everybody, by the way, some people ask me, which party would Jesus belong to? And the answer is, I don't know that he could tolerate any of us. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, I mean and there's good and bad in everything, and, but, but here's the thing. Since we're all sinful people fallen from God and bent on evil. There is no good political party. And I know you can't hear that. The more political you are, the less you just heard what I said. Right? That's just the facts of it. But we all have our biases. And in the absence of definitive truth, everybody goes to their biases. I believe Lori, not that other person. Potiphar believes his, his wife. And that's why when this last debate, because there's no definitive truth ever spelled out, I wish there was, I wish there was, all the political people stuck to blue and stuck to red, and it became this party against party kind of thing. And if they could put all that down and go, what is the truth? Maybe if we had the absolute truth. Right? And all, all I'm pointing out is we have this cognitive dissonance, this, this we hear something, but what we want to be true gets in the way of what is true, and what we're threatened by gets in the way, and it's our dilemma. It's our, our, our dilemma. Now, I said this last night, and some people said, Doug, you are way overly optimistic, so I'm just going to tell you what I said. If we had definitive truth, whichever way the truth would go on, the, on, on, on her story, right? If we had definitive truth, I think everybody who's blue would do what the truth required, and everybody who's red would do what the truth required. I think then they could overcome their biases, is what I'm saying. Right? So some people close to me said, ah, no. <laughs> they just, it's agendized. It's more than, no matter what the truth is, they won't do it. I'm, I'm kind of going, really? You think that? So, but just, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm an optimist. I think if Potiphar had the truth, then he could have taken the appropriate stand and, and maybe Joseph's future would have been, would have been different. Now I've got to add one more thing. If you're a victim of, you know, you could put hashtag me too, if you're a victim of some past event in your life, don't, don't let the bias-driven environment you just saw play out be an indictment on what happened to you or your voice or your experience. In other words, you are to be believed, you are to be heard, you are to be listened to and loved, and we want to be a part of that. We, we want to be a part of healing. Don't, don't let things that play out in Washington destroy your confidence and, 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 and interfere with your pain. We have to, you still need to get healthy. 
You still need to walk through that. And don't say, well, no one will ever believe anything. Don't, don't make those kinds of um, leaps. You count. It matters. And I know when it plays out, it's easy to go to a place where nobody cares. See, they don't care about that person. They didn't listen to her, so they're not going to listen to me. Please don't do that. Give us a shot. Right? So, knowing the truth is everything. In fact, this morning I was reading through 1 Corinthians 13, and it, and it says that in chapter, uh, verse 6 of 13, it says, truth, or love always rejoices when truth wins out. And I was thinking, you know what? That's when love rejoices. That's when we rejoice. We don't know the truth. And our rejoicing is tempered by not knowing for sure what took place. All right, let's go on with the story. So, so, so Potiphar, according to his bias, goes, Joseph, you did this. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held. By the way, that's an important line. Where, this is an important prison. This is where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. Right? So now he's in dark place number two. Can you, you didn't do it. According to the Bible, he didn't do it. And he's thrown into prison. And yet it's the king's prison where the important prisoners are. That just shows you Potiphar's power and his position. And, he threw, and, and again, the dark place. So what are you thinking now? By the way, I think it's worse because what were you thinking when you became Potiphar's servant? And he trusted you for everything. And then, and you think you're on your way up and this is, these dreams could come true. And then the dream is crushed by false accusations and you're in prison. Isn't it darker? Isn't it worse because you had hope just for a little while? And you're in prison there and you're going, God, where are you? I'm abandoned again. Are you just toying with me? Is there no hope for me? And so he's in prison again for enough time to build credibility in the prison with the guard. He's, guard starts making him run stuff in, in there. That's because his gift of administration and leadership kind of shines through. And one day, some of the king's other prisoners enter in, some people that the pharaoh's upset with. So a baker, the chief baker for the, for the pharaoh, the cupbearer, the guy who tastes the wine, dangerous job, and then hands the cup to the pharaoh, and the pharaoh just waits a little bit to make sure that guy's okay, right? Because he's testing it to make sure it's not poisoned. And, and he gives the cup to the pharaoh. So the cupbearer and the baker um, are in prison with him, and after a time, they have dreams, Right? And Joseph, because of God, God's gifting him, goes, I can interpret them. It's not really me, it's, it's God. Here's the interpretation. He says, in three days, two things are going to happen. The cupbearer, you're going to get saved and reinstated. You'll be drinking poisoned wine soon. And the baker, you're going to be executed. So it's a bummer to be the baker, right, in this scenario. And, and then he turns to the cupbearer. And he says, when you get saved... Tell the Pharaoh about me. I'm in this dark place. There's no hope for me. I'm here forever. My, my interpretation of your dream, remember that. Tell the Pharaoh that I'm down here, that I interpreted your dream, that I told you beforehand. Maybe he's got a place for me. Maybe he'll save me out of this darkness. Don't forget me, is the plea. And then in verse 20 of chapter 40, it says, Pharaoh's birthday came three days later. And he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. Big party. He summoned the chief cupbearer and the chief baker out of prison. Come on back. We're having a party to join the other officials. And then he restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could be, be again, uh, the, so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. 
But Pharaoh impaled, we know what that means, the chief baker. He killed him. Just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted the dream. The Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Good times are good for him, and he forgets everybody that helped him get there. And now I'm thinking, this is dark place number three. Even though he's in the exact same place, there's a new level to darkness to it. And it didn't happen right away, because it took two years before anything else happened. But what does he have? He doesn't have, no one comes and says, hey, the cupbearer forgot all about you, you're doomed. It's just another day of silence, another day of silence, another day of silence, another day of hopelessness, another day of hopelessness for two years. And by the end of a couple of months, he had to be thinking, he forgot me. There's no hope. I'm stuck here. And then something remarkable happened. The Pharaoh has his own dreams. Dreams are the constant thread through this whole story. Dreams from God. The dreams that the Pharaoh has um, are weird dreams. You know, they're dreams that you would just say, I ate bad pizza last night kind of dreams. He's dreaming about the Nile River, and out of the river he sees seven fat cows come out. And then a little bit later, seven emaciated, skinny, rib-showing cows come out, and they do something incredibly gross. They eat the fat cows, but after they eat the fat cows, cows eating cows, it doesn't get worse than that, after they eat the fat cows, they're still just as emaciated. He wakes up and he's going, oh, this is just a really bad dream. And he goes back to sleep, and there's another dream where he sees seven bundles or stalks or, uh, of grain, incredibly bountiful grain. And then he sees another seven that have hardly any grain to them at all, these, these plants, and, and one replaces the other. And then he goes to all the people he knows in his court and he says, who knows how to interpret dreams? What does this mean? What does this mean? And nobody has a definitive answer for him. And finally, at that point, the cupbearer remembers. And he says, you know, there's this guy in, the, in your prison. His name is Joseph. He interpreted our dreams for us. Maybe he can do yours as well. So Joseph comes and he interprets the dream. The interpretation is going to be seven years of great fat cow and big stock grain living. In other words, things are going to be abundant and beautiful and awesome. And then there's going to be a famine emaciated cows, emaciated grain. There's not going to be enough food. And the Pharaoh goes, this is incredible. It it makes perfect sense what he's saying. And then the Pharaoh says, you, Joseph, recognizing his competency again, you're going to get to administrate the plan. So Joseph puts into play a plan to save all of Egypt and people in the region who are going to starve. During those seven years, he saves up, eat little, save much. And then he distributed the grain over the next coming, you know, the future years. Right? So he made seven years of food last for 14. Through that, he saves his own family who were dying so much they come to Egypt because they hear there's food there to get saved. And he distributes food to them. And, um, and that's, that's more of a story. So at the very end of the story, their father dies, who now lives in Egypt. And Jacob and his brothers are having a meeting and his brothers are worried that Jacob's going to hold that against him because what brother would ever hold that against another brother? And this idea of killing him. And he, he goes, you guys, 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 what you meant for harm, God meant for good. It's okay. I forgive you. We're family again. And he saved them and he forgives them again. Sort of a future Christ moment for all of us as well. And that's the end of the story. But what I want to focus on just for a moment, just to review, is the dark days. So you remember how dark they really were. He was hated by his brothers. 
He was thrown into a cistern to die. He was sold into slavery forever. He was thrown into prison for life without, without any hope. And he was completely forgotten. All because God promised him he was going to become the person to save everyone. Right? What an awful journey to where he landed. What a journey through, through darkness. And this is Joseph. And if I was thinking, man, if I could go back and talk to Joseph, because I know from hindsight what he couldn't know when he was there. And if I could go back and be with Joseph in that, in that prison, in that cistern, in his darkest days, I would say, I know what you're feeling, Joseph, but you were, you've never been forgotten. You never will be forgotten. You've never been alone. No matter how dark a place you feel right now, and you never will be alone. God is right here, and God has not forgotten you, and you are loved, even though you don't feel it. And you are not forgotten, and you are not alone, and you are loved, even though you don't feel it. God is here. And here's the thing that you can't know, Joseph. God works in the dark. And while you're here in the dark, God is working. You just can't see it. And he's using these dark places to get you to where you need to be. And there are brighter days ahead. Remember I promised you I'd show you the video, the rest of the story? There's two guys going to their darkest place. Watch what happened. So I don't know where you are right now, I can promise you that I, mean, I know in this room there are people who go, this is, this is I'm in the pit I'm in the jail, I'm in one of those dark places in my life right now and if that's not you I can promise you there is a day coming that will be dark and there is a place coming that will be it is part of our, of our lives we live in an evil world what I want you to know what I hope to remind myself of during those dark times is I'm never forgotten I'm never alone, and I'm always loved, no matter how dark the place is that I'm at. And God works in the dark. God works in the dark. Romans 28, 828 puts it this way. It says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It doesn't say that everything works together that everything is good, it just says that God can take the darkness and use it for good because he works in the darkness. And it doesn't say he's going to make us more comfortable. He just says he's going to use it for good, for his children, for his family. It's not about, it does not say that God uses everything to make us more comfortable. Because he doesn't, and we know he doesn't. He's willing to endure our discomfort along with us in order to bring about good things. And then Paul continues on 10 verses later and he says i'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from god's love neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow in other words there's no dark place there's no dark event that will ever take away god's love our fears about tomorrow not even the powers of hell can separate us from god's love and by the way, however you respond to powers of hell, there's a dark force in this world that wants nothing more than to take the dark places of our lives and feel, make us feel that God has forgotten us, that God's not there, that he doesn't care. But nothing can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation, will ever be able to separate us 
from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we're in the dark place, we need to remember God works in the dark. He loves in the dark. And he sits with us in the dark. Let's pray. God, we, um, we count on it. We know life has hard moments and hard chapters to it. And we've turned to you because we can't go through it alone. And yes, we'd like to sing and worship and celebrate you and enjoy our lives that you've given us. But the reality also is that you are, you are God who is with us at every moment. And we live in a world that's fallen and full of darkness. Would you remind us when we're in our own dark place that you have not forgotten us? that you are with us and that you love us. And God, help us to remind others and be with them. In Christ's name, amen.